Off with their heads. We've all heard that quote from the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Maybe you remember the scary story of the headless horseman from childhood. Beheading is how people were put to death in France via the guillotine, and even in current times we have heard of beheadings within terrorist organizations. What is the fascination behind losing our heads? There seems to be some inherent power placed in our heads, as there should be. After all, it's where we speak, hear, taste, feel, and smell. All the senses in one place. It's what makes us, us. So is it hard to believe that there are people who believe that their enemies' souls leave through their mouths when they die? Would it be beyond the scope of our comprehension to think that if our enemies' souls escape their bodies, they might do us harm in the afterlife? If they could do that, our next thought would be, how do we keep the souls inside the head? This is the belief of the Shuar, the most popular of the head shrinkers. This is a brief history of head shrinking and the story of Eno Lolling, a Nazi German doctor who allowed the abuse of dead bodies. Not only that, but he experimented with head shrinking himself. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thank you for listening. The Shuar are indigenous people of Ecuador and Peru. They are members of the Jivarovan people who are Amazonian tribes. The Amazon is vast, beautiful, and wild. If you've listened to the previous episode about the murder of adventurer Emma Kelty, you know the layout of the land. Shuar means people in the Shuar language. They are separated into two groups. There are the Shuar, or the hill people, who live in the foothills of the Andes, and the Ashuar, who are the swamp people. They live in the wetter lowlands. These two groups do not get along. The Shuar were semi-nomadic and live in separate households. A typical family consisted of a husband and his wives, usually two, his unmarried sons and daughters. The men hunted and wove clothes while the women gardened. The Shuar believe in three fundamental spirits. The Waikani, which is innate to humans surviving their death. The Arutam, which protects humans from a violent death. And the Muziak, which is a vengeful spirit that surfaces when a person is murdered. To block the Muziak, or vengeful spirit, they severed their enemies' heads and shrank them. This caused two things to happen. Shrinking the head of an enemy enabled the shrinker to harness the spirit of the shrinkee and compel him or her to serve the shrinker. It would also prevent the spirit from avenging his or her death. Sansas, or shrunken heads, were prominently displayed within the home or tribe. Some Shuar also believed that the power kept inside the heads would allow control of their wives and or daughters' labor. Since women cultivated crops and provided the bulk of the calories in the Shuar diet, women's labor was crucial to their life. The first contact with Shuar by Europeans was in the 16th century, but wasn't until the late 19th century and early 20th that the Shuar became famous for the elaborate process of shrinking the heads of their enemies, the Ashuar. It was at that time that Europeans and Euro-Americans began trading goods, including guns, for shrunken heads. 
which the locals called sansas. Increase in local warfare, including headhunting, contributed to the perception of the Shuar as violent people. The demand for heads led to more murders and head shrinking, and so the Shuar worked and hunted to fill that demand. Sansas were made by taking a freshly severed head, making a Y incision in the back of the head, and then essentially peeling the skin from the skull. The incision is then sewn up and the eyes are sewn shut. The mouth is pinned closed with needle-like pegs or sticks. The skin is then boiled with various herbs for a certain amount of time until all the fat is cooked out. The skin is then turned inside out and is scraped to remove any additional flesh. It's then turned proper side out and seeds are placed in the nasal passages to make the correct shapes and the head is filled with sand and rocks that are heated to make it contract from the inside and to maintain a proper shape. This essentially tanned the inside, which allowed it to be preserved. Once the head reached the desired size and was full of hot sand and stones, more hot stones would be applied to the outside of the face to seal and shape the features. The skin was rubbed with charcoal ash to darken it and, of course, to keep the avenging soul from leaking out. The finished Sansa was hung over a fire to harden and blacken. Finally, the wooden pegs which held the lips together would be pulled out and replaced with string to lash them, and the eyes closed. When completed, the heads would be about the size of a human fist. When Westerners and Europeans started traveling and discovering cultures that practiced head shrinking, they were terrified and fascinated. Many of them brought back souvenirs. In the 1930s, a shrunken head was sold for $25, which is worth about $390 today. They were so popular, in fact, that entrepreneurial shuar began using sloth and monkeys to make fake shrunken heads. Telling the difference can be very difficult, and researchers say most displayed in museums are not really human. Forensic researchers say one of the best ways to tell is by looking at the ears. They say, quote, The presence of sealed eyelids, pierced lips with strings sealing the mouth, long glossy hair, shiny black skin, and lateral head compression are characteristics of authentic sansas. Fake ones rarely present any or few of those criteria. They have used DNA analysis along with microscopic hair analysis to establish the authenticity of several human sansas. Imitations are typically non-human or prepared by someone other than the Shuar and other tribes local to that area. The Shuar have killed people to make powerful objects, while we have made powerful objects to kill people. So who are the savages and who are the civilized? Head shrinking is gruesome and has been outlawed since the 1930s, but heads continued to be shrunk. This brings us to Eno Loling and war crimes committed by him and his underlings. Eno Loling was a Nazi doctor. He served as camp doctor at Dachau and later headed up the medical division for all the SS camps. In 1931, he joined the Nazi party at age 43. He was accepted as a general practitioner, and in 1936, he became the doctor at Dachau. Followed only five years later, by becoming the chief physician of all the concentration camps. 
He was repeatedly named as the medical person in authority during the trials for war crimes against camp officials. He was there until the end and gave orders for many deplorable acts. Lolling, at one point, requested written instructions for the preparation of shrunken human heads. These were sent, and the SS doctors reportedly prepared a sizable number of these, according to the method provided. There are photos of two human heads laying front and center on a table with other items made from corpses. I will tell you about them in a little bit. A physicist named Kurt Zeit said that one of the two shrunken heads that were prepared by the pathology department prior to him working there was the head of a Polish prisoner who escaped the camp, was recaptured, and executed. Then, on orders from above, he was decapitated. A prisoner of the camp was ordered to prepare the heads by splitting the skin, peeling out the interior, filling the cavities with sand, and putting the entirety in sand of a certain heat and pressure for 24 to 48 hours. After this procedure, the shrunken head was formed. The two heads presented were a main attraction when visitors, SS, or other officers came to the pathology department. A prisoner named Bach was interrogated and confirmed that he was made to take part in the head shrinking. Some German officials claimed that the heads were souvenirs from the South Sea Islands and were not actually from prisoners of the camp. These claims are not backed up by a single shred of evidence. Meanwhile, there is 100% proof of correspondence, documentary evidence of head shrinking. A letter from a garrison physician at Buchenwald to the pathology department states, It is brought to your attention that the production of so-called gift articles, in quotations, shrunken heads, has to cease immediately. Thus, it is proved that several shrunken heads were produced as gifts in Buchenwald. There are other charges that today would be filed under abuse of a corpse. There were rumors of lampshades made from human skin, usually with tattoos. It was believed that the commandant, Carl Otto Koch's wife, would choose prisoners to be made into lampshades. Unlike the case with the shrunken heads, the lampshade allegations are not as clear. There are no documents about them. However, witnesses at the trial claim to have seen lampshades and other human skin articles in the cock house and implied that the prisoners were killed on Cox's behalf to collect their tattoos. The only lampshade exhibited in Buchenwald was proven not to be made from human skin. However, there are two credible witnesses that made statements under oath. One was an Austrian political prisoner who was a doctor. He said that one day the camp commandant Cock and the SS doctor Mueller chose among the tanned parchment of thin human skins the pieces with suitable tattoos for the lampshade. From the conversation between the two, it became clear that the previously chosen motifs had not pleased Commandant Cock's wife. The new lampshade was completed and handed over to Cock. Another man named Ackerman was asked to deliver the lamp. He said the foot of the lamp was made from a human foot and shin bone, and on the shade one could see tattoos. On the occasion of a birthday party, he was asked to bring the lamp to Cox Villa, where the party was to take place. The lamp was a huge success. The lamp immediately disappeared after the SS leadership heard about it. An inmate of the prison said he saw the lamp also. 
A second lamp was reported to be fashioned, but had a wooden rather than a bone base. Regardless, there was no documentary proof of the lamps, only hearsay. There was, however, documentary proof of human skin with tattoos being saved. In 1944, it was ordered by Eno Lolling to deliver 140 pieces of tattooed skin from Buchenwald to Orenenburg as soon as possible. They were supposedly produced for research on criminality and formerly not being used as gifts, but the tan skin fragments were absolutely used to produce various gruesome presents. Whether prisoners were murdered to harvest their tattoos is still an open question. Further abuse of corpses was the use of human fat to make soap. There are two different stories that are told. One is that the Jews were turned into soap by the Nazis and the soap had the initial RIF or RJF, which stood for, in German, pure Jewish fat. This is utterly false. It was completely discredited. The rumors, however, ran rampant. The second claim was that there was a building that was used to essentially macerate and incinerate or crush and burn body parts. The soapy grease that came from the maceration process may have been collected and turned into soap that was used to wash down equipment. A lab assistant claimed that in February of 1945, he needed soap and asked the commandant of the building for it. The director told him to go to the maceration lab for the first time. He said he saw people in the process of mixing something in buckets heated by gas burners. He also saw a table full of pieces of white soap, each about one kilogram. He asked if they were making soap from human bodies, and the men stated that they had an order to do it. The man stated that he was given a piece of soap from the table to use. Piper, who was the commandant mentioned earlier, said that he knew soap was being made from humans. He said that soap was produced from the foam floating on top of the surface of the liquid in the autoclave, and another form was made from the rest of the liquid using alum. This indicates that the soap was a byproduct of bone maceration rather than the fatty tissue of corpses. Two British POWs made statements that flesh was removed from bones and placed into a boiler. The liquid that came from the boiler was put into white trays and were put outside to dry. They said three to four trays were obtained each day. Further statements suggested that a machine was made for the manufacture of soap. It was an electrically heated tank into which bones and flesh were placed along with some acid. The melting down process took about 24 hours and the fatty portion was put into an enamel tank. It was further mixed with acid believed to be caustic soda and was cooled and cut into blocks for examination. He said he had no idea how much was produced but that it was used for cleaning tables in the dissection rooms. He stated he didn't know if the soap was used outside of the facility, but he saw it being used in blocks two inches thick, six inches long, and two inches wide. It was yellow in color and had a normal smell. Soap was found in the maceration building and photographed. It was tested in 2006 and found to be compatible with human soap. However, it has a very similar chemical fingerprint as soap made from pig fat. The minimal facts are that human soap was made. It was a byproduct of the bone maceration process. It was used for cleaning tasks within the Institute. 
It was not sold or claimed to have been made from Jews. Finally, and probably the grossest to some of you who find human hair, especially in shower drains, to be disgusting, human hair was collected and used industrially. The body hair was burned, but the head hair was harvested for use in brushes and industrial felt or yarn. The combed out or cut women's hair was used in the manufacture of hair yard footlets for U-boat crews and knee socks for the Imperial Railway. Their hair was disinfected and then stored. Men's hair would only be used if it was 20 millimeters or longer. So there was a trial period of growing the male prisoner's hair to that length before it was cut. There is absolute proof of this once again in documentation of letters between officials. There is also photographic evidence of bales of human hair being stored in Auschwitz. It was estimated to be about 7,000 kilograms or over 15,000 pounds. So, the creation of human shrunking heads in Buchenwald is documented. The order to do so doesn't seem to come from higher-ups in the organization, as it was stopped by the order from a Nazi doctor, after it seems to have served as a source of entertainment for the camp physicians. The creation of one or two lampshades made from human skin is not documented, but it's very probable because the story was told by witnesses from within the pathology department, where they were said to be made, and one of the prisoners admitted to being asked to make one on order from camp officials. The human soap was real, but was exaggerated by propaganda. Finally, the use of hair is very clearly documented. Dr. Eno Lolling is only a man, but he was the man in charge of the physicians in the camps. He should have been able to testify to what occurred under his watch. However, when the war came to an end, he, like many others who are very guilty of heinous crimes to other human beings, killed himself rather than facing the consequences of his actions. In all reality, many of the worst offenders escaped with absolutely no reprimand. Clearly, abuse of corpses has been happening for centuries and across so many borders. Headhunters and head shrinkers are just the tip of the iceberg. According to most documentation, human head shrinking hasn't been done in the last 20 years and the world is becoming more civilized. Or is it? I found an article written by a man who calls himself Captain Fatty Goodlander, who has lived aboard his boat for 53 of his 60 years and has circumnavigated many times. He is the author of Chasing the Horizon and several other sailing books. I'd like to share one of his travel stories that takes place in Indonesia, far from the Shuar in Peru. He writes, We've extensively cruised Indonesia on all four of our circumnavigations. Put together, that's a year's worth of gunkoling in their 17,500 far-flung islands. So two things are true. One, we spent a good amount of time sailing in the world's largest Islamic country, and two, we've barely scratched the surface. They intend to return soon, saying he can't imagine any country that is ethnically diverse or more welcoming than Indonesia. Indonesia is located between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. It consists of more than 17,000 islands. Captain Fatty goes on to write, The one thing that amuses us in the ongoing cultural war between their tourism department and their headkeepers 
international tourism is finally blossoming in Indonesia, in part because it's losing its reputation for being too challenging, in quotations, scary, a destination for the average tourist. Thus, the last thing the tourist department wants is for the local Dayak tribes to start displaying their villages' shrunken heads. This culturally restrictive policy totally bums out the small villages along the Sekoinir River. Why shouldn't they show off their proudest possessions? If you arrive by boat, they come alongside and dug out canoes and suspiciously ask if you're from the central government. If the answer is no, they immediately light up and whisper, Want to come to our village and see the heads? The village we visited kept them hidden under their longhouse, seven shrunken heads on a hardwood plank. The village across the river only has four, sniffed their chief disdainfully. Pretty weak, right? Now I'll admit that shrunken human heads aren't to everyone's taste, but America has its cowboy heroes, and England had its knights in shining armor, and while the Dayak, the former headhunters of Indonesia, have their remaining precious heads as evidence of their cultural valor. Now this whole chop off a head might strike you as a tad lawless and inhumane, but that's not the way they see it. There were four strict rules back in the day. No children, no pregnant women, no crazy people, and the victim couldn't be asleep. It was, well, sort of fair, explained the chief of the village we visited in Borneo. And it was in the sense that if a headhunter went off to hunt a head and didn't return, well, it was assumed that his now diminutive head was being admired in a nearby village. Of course, the headhunters had the element of surprise, were heavily armed, and might be attacking elderly folks, but hey, people tend to keep their heads if at all possible. Thus, heads were and are scarce. It was a catch-as, catch-can. In the region we cruised, headhunting might not be such an ancient practice. In 2001, over 500 Matteris were slaughtered by the Dayaks, and the local amateur taxidermists were rumored to be working overtime. Theoretically, of course, headhunting is now totally illegal. However, local people still have accidents, and in rural Borneo, an amazing number of those accidents just happen to involve headless corpses. If a motorcyclist's headless body is found on the side of a highway, well, someone must have forgotten to take down a particularly sharp clothesline, right? If a pair of headless bodies are found in a car with its windows rolled down, well, it's obvious that something came whizzing into the car, decapitated both occupants, and flew out the opposite window along with their heads. That makes sense, right? Now, now, don't be so judgmental, dear reader. Think of the young aspiring man interested in the local, uh, art of miniature human taxidermy, shall we say? Sure, he knows he's only supposed to traditionally shrink heads that died nobly in battle, but hey, practice makes perfect. So perhaps a little opportunistic, quote, harvesting usually happens. I mean, it isn't like the dead person needed their head or anything, right? Isn't a little compassion in order? It is if you're Dayak. Keeping shrunken heads in a rainforest environment isn't easy. One, they can't get wet, and two, any mildew must be removed immediately. Three, they have to stay insect-free. They're basically leather and thus edible, so rats, mice, and small dogs must be kept away as well. The heads look amazingly eerie, 
For one thing, they are perfectly proportioned. The second crazy thing is that the mouths are sewn shut. But the thing that got me the most was that, while the heads shrink, their ears and nose hairs don't. Thus, the noses in particular appear to have small paintbrush bristles sticking out of each nostril. Blech. Of course, I'm an inquisitive fellow, as we journalists tend to be, and I knew I was in the presence of proud experts who were brimming with cultural knowledge, as gruesome as that knowledge might be. So I said nonchalantly, how do you shrink ahead? It turns out it's relatively easy, but it takes restraint and time if you want the final product to look identical to its original human form. The key is heat, but heat is also the enemy as well. Too much heat and the epidermal area that is overheated will deform. It must just be a small amount of heat evenly distributed. First, you need a fresh body. Once a human face has been left for a couple of days in the humid tropical rainforest, it's too late. So the fresher, the better. Second, chop off the head and allow it to briefly drain. Three, make a Y-shaped slit in the back of the head, then peel the flesh from the skull using a sharp knife or more traditionally, a sharpened seashell, to retain as much of the epidermis as possible, with minimal fat. 4. Sew up the Y-shaped incision, the eyes and the mouth. 5. Boil it gently with herbs containing tannins. This will reduce its size by about a third. Say boil for half an hour or an hour or so. 6. After it's dried out, gather a gradient of small, smooth stones, rocks, tiny rocks, and sand. 7. Heat them, but only a small amount. Remember, having the rock sand too cool takes extra time. Having it too hot, it deforms the face. 8. Gently pour the head sock with the heated sand until it's about halfway full while continuously rotating the head. Do not stop until the rock sand is cool. 9. Rub with charcoal ash, which traps the soul, and smoke cure it for a few days to assist in preservation. 10. Use black seeds or fruit pits for the miniature eyes. Of course, receipts vary. Some tribes don't believe in boiling and make up for it with additional smoking. Don't forget that you don't merely end up with the head. You also inherit the courage of the dead man, and his head is just a pleasant reminder of your bravery. And that ends Captain Fatty's account of head shrinking in Indonesia. Don't you think it's interesting that the beliefs, even through thousands of miles apart, are similar? That somehow the head shrinker gains power from the shrinkee. Wherever you are from, it can't be denied that it's a fascinating subject. Shrunken heads are found in the media, including one of my old favorites, Beetlejuice, and today in the animated kids' movies, the Hotel Transylvania series, and most popular of all, this podcast. Jokes aside, even though I wish it were true. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Twisted Travel and Shoe Crime. If you did, please take a minute to give it five stars, make a nice comment, and share with a friend. If you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link in the episode description that will tell you how. Your support goes towards research and makes me feel a lot better when I'm awake at four o'clock in the morning recording these podcasts or doing work towards the next podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. And as always, I am here wishing you fair winds and following seas.